0: about things he did we know about statements he made we know his the impact that he had on the world of his day none of us are needing to be convinced of the greatness of Martin Luther but what is greatness what does it mean to be great and how do you become great how was Luther great I think it's a question that is worth asking as we start looking at Luther. What is greatness? You know in the Bible, in Hebrews 11, there's a list of great people, heroes of the faith, right? And uh, included in that chapter, not everyone in the Bible, but many of the prominent figures of the Bible, um, Abraham, Noah, is Abel in there? Offering a better sacrifice or is that elsewhere in Hebrews? Abel, Lot, isn't Lot in there? Um, and we could go on in that chapter. Some of them, what? Abel, Abel. okay. We, we could continue, thank you. We could continue on with um, the... The famous people, the people who are regarded as heroes, and we could end up with some who would say, well, that's surprising. The Bible regards Lot as a hero, you know, a great man of faith. Um, but then at the end, there's an interesting part of that, which um, I think is maybe the most interesting part of Hebrews 11 and that chapter, which is sometimes, I think, poorly called the the hall of greatness or what? what is the term that people use the hall of faith or something like that because certainly there are people I don't like that term for it but we all understand it Um, the reason I don't like it is that there are certainly people in the Bible who were great and who are not mentioned in here and so for instance, um, you have David and Samuel, but you don't have uh, Josiah, do you? You know, and so it's kind of a representative grouping. But then at the end, it comes and it says, um, <clears throat> "And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I recount Gideon, one of the surprising kind of ones; Barak, Samson, Jephthah, another surprising one; David and Samuel." who through faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. And so we can tie these acts to certain of these people, but it seems that at this point the author of Hebrews is moving on into a wider stream than he began with. So conquered kingdoms, well David did that, performed righteousness. Well, Gideon did that, you know, drub all, uh, contending with Baal. Um, Obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Daniel's not listed, but you, you, you have to understand that shutting the mouths of lions is probably a reference to, to Daniel, but maybe to others. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and floggings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in desolate places in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So it becomes clear that as he mentions the specific names of people in their acts at the beginning, at the end, he turns to a broad stream of faith of people whose names are not known by us. He doesn't have time, but he recounts the things that people have gone through. And those people are placed in this chapter on the same level as the the ones who are listed. Abraham, you know, Abel, all those, David, Jephthah, Samuel, all those are listed. But then there's these anonymous ones who aren't anonymous to God that he mentions. And so this is, I think, something that we have to recognize as we come to the Word of God and as we come to assessing men like Luther. Luther is known. Luther is great. Luther does not define greatness. There is greatness that is greatness like Luther's here. It looks different. But this world is not devoid of that greatness and and Luther was not supernaturally great in a way that no one else was. Luther's greatness came from a very simple thing that he himself recognized. The key to Luther's greatness was not the character of Luther or the home he grew up in or the circumstances he found himself in, but that he knew God. Luther knew God. He was not great in himself, but all true biblical greatness is the result of a connection with God, right? And so greatness means knowing God. It's not inherent in us or in the great. It is in God. Greatness is in God, and it's the knowledge of God that we receive and that we pursue that makes us great. And so I was reading the other day in the Bible how it says that we should press on to know God press on and I thought yeah how many of us are pressing on to know God which is what Luther did Luther pressed on to know God and that knowledge of God made him great and those who press on to know God whether they're famous as Luther or anonymous whether their suffering is written in the Bible or just simply mentioned anonymously at the end of Hebrews 11 are great now, as we look at Luther, I think it's important to understand that his greatness was knowing God, because as we see Luther, we're going to see him making absolutely bold, kind of audacious judgments. He makes a judgment, he's confident in it, and he moves on. He is not prone to second guessing. He says things, and he means them, and he moves on. And later in life, people say to him, Luther, you said all these things. I don't know if we'll get to this, but it, as he, he gets to be 63 before he dies, as he goes on in age, he starts realizing how much he said and how much of it's self-contradictory and how he says something at one time and something at another time. So finally, towards the end of his life, he says, okay, whatever Melanchthon says I said, that's what I said. <laughs> Melanchthon being his best friend and the systematizer of the Lutheran, the, the Lutheran work and denomination. And uh, that's Luther, um, he, he, he's scathing in his judgments of those who should know God, for those who are called to pursue God by their, by their lives, by their position, and who do not know him and don't seek him. So he's protected, and we'll come to this, by Frederick the Elector, Frederick the Wise, Frederick Third, the prince of his region of Germany, but Luther was constantly disappointed with Frederick, this man who absolutely out of, out of his wisdom, I think, and desire to be a Christian, a Christian ruler, preserved the life of Luther after the Diet of Worms when he was put under the imperial ban. Frederick the Elector preserved his life, took him to safety, shut him up in a castle so that he could be safe, and during that time, those weeks, Luther translated the Bible into German. Just So Frederick, you'd think, was a great guy, but Frederick was a guy who had a finger, as most kings are going to, or prince, had a finger in the air, knowing which way the wind was blowing and was attuned to it. And uh, he also was a great collector of relics. He was very proud of his collection of relics, and so Luther called him the great hesitator because he didn't have the confidence of Luther. Luther uh, spoke and wrote very strongly against the Jews. And he's accused today of being anti-Semitic and the father of German anti-Semitism. But that's not it. It just totally misses the mark. Why Why was Luther especially strong against the Jews? What's that? Law and grace, I don't really think so. I mean, that's he did go law and grace, but I think that the, the reason he was against the Jews is that they were given knowledge and they rejected it. They did not seek the God who came to them. They did not want him. And so he is strong, and rightfully so. The Bible is strong against the Jews for the rejection of Christ. God is against them for killing their Messiah. For saying, let his blood be on us and our children. We we have to recognize these things or we don't understand Luther. Luther was powerful against the Pope. He railed against Tetzel, the Dominican friar who sold the the indulgences in this town who finally in some ways precipitated the, the, the last acts or the beginning acts, whatever you want to call it, of the Reformation, the last acts of the United Church, the first acts of the division. He is against a man who you would think would be his friend, the great humanist scholar Erasmus, who preceded him. Luther was tremendously influenced by Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, this this one of the greatest scholars of all time. I remember in college, kids would wear T-shirts with the picture of Erasmus and it would say Erasmus on it. I thought, what is this? You know, who was Erasmus? Well since then I've come to know. Just the the Erasmus was the man who who translated and who collected the manuscripts in Greek and and came up with the and established the study of Greek. It had been lost. Erasmus was a reformer but upon When Luther was arguing with Erasmus, because Erasmus was a theologian with his finger in the air. He, was, he knew which way the wind blew, and he didn't want to go against the people, hurricane. He wasn't willing to do that. So when, in dispute with Luther, Erasmus said that he, was, he doubted that the truth could be known about whether humans have free will... That's what Erasmus says, I don't know. I don't know if the truth can be known about whether we have free will. Luther replied, the Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows, and he's told us in the word, and he accused Erasmus of a man of being so unsure of things, can't be sure of anything, and was accusing him of not being a Christian. Upon the death of Erasmus in 1536, well after the Reformation had in its basic form been effected, Luther said of him, the famous Erasmus has died in Basel without priest or prayers ready for hell. You know, I I know, I see his head shaking and people saying, but Luther knew God. And he had a foe who said, I don't know, I don't know. And a man of faith looking at this man of brilliance but lacking fundamentally faith in certain things says, you're not a Christian. I think Luther's an example for us in these ways. Luther famously said that, well, Luther famously said of the Reformation later in life, I only preached, urged, and declared God's word, nothing else. And yet, while I was asleep or drinking Wittenberg beer with my Philip Melanchthon, who was his closest friend, and Amsdorf, another friend, the word inflicted greater injury on popery than prince or emperor ever did. I did nothing. The word did everything. Now, every one of you probably has heard that quote before, but it really is the essence of the man. This man believed the word. This is how you come to know God. Every advance in your life of knowing God, of pursuing God, is going to come as you know God through his word. So Luther taught the word, lived the word, believed the word, translated the word, and said the word did it. Knowledge of God is what changes our lives, and that knowledge comes through the word of God. There can't be a more fundamental lesson from the life of Luther than this. Know the word of God spend your time reading the word of God. Luther, one of the great advantages these people had over us today is that they did not have entertainment. They had reading. And when Luther's Bible came out, when it was published, it became the great goal of every German home to own a copy of Luther's Bible because they could read it. And it was a sign that they were, secular scholars say it was a sign that they were middle class, you know, that they were it wasn't it was a sign that they were committed to the Word of God that they were committed that they had a Bible in their home after having been denied it for so long they had a Bible they wanted the Bible it was the one thing that they would have in their home the Word of God and so this is a fundamental lesson of in greatness greatness comes from knowing God and knowing God is only found through his word every advance in your life in in growth as a as a christian every advance you've had has come in one way or another through you being affected by the word of god whether preached or taught or read it is the word that creates greatness and this is luther so i want to set the stage luther didn't come from nowhere uh luther was a product of his times and the the reformation that he led was also a product of those times it came in the providence of god at a set moment it did not come just by chance i was reading in amos this morning and amos says you know um he said when two men walk together and talk it's by agreement when you know when these things happen it happens and finally says Whenever there's calamity, God is revealing himself. And and so we look at, at Luther and we want to say, great man. No. Amos says, understand that when these things happen, God has appointed something as an end and a change and a new beginning. And that's what we're looking for in America today. I mean, it's... We need God to work. We need to trust him and we need to work and to trust that he'll work. We need to pursue him because there's darkness around us, just like at Luther's time. But there were certain things that God had already established. There was the Renaissance, humanism. This is why the, the, the guys in college would wear the Erasmus. He was the famous humanist scholar. Um, they were opposing humanism to Christianity. Erasmus never opposed humanism to Christianity, nor did Luther. Luther saw humanism as being something that was very much Christian. There were, it was Christian humanism, and Erasmus came out was one of the great figures of the Renaissance as a Christian humanist. What he said is that God loves men. God is for men, that people are important to God, and that's the essence of humanism. Now, it's not worshiping men, it's worshiping God as they did it. And it's not that today, now it's worshiping men. But back then, it was worshiping God, but understanding that God loves men. And so, these people, instead of dwelling in weird things and abstract philosophy, said, no, the, the truth is applicable. And they went, from, they went from loving Aristotle, who was this very, very, um, I don't know how to describe Aristotle, but this very abstract thinker and Aristotelian thought had come down and and it had become entrenched in the church so that they would have these arguments about how many angels could sit on the head of a pin, literally, things like this. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, the greatest Catholic theologian and a great theologian, was thoroughly Aristotelian. But the humanists said, no, Plato is our hero. Plato is much simpler and understandable. And they loved Plato. They were... Followers of Plato, they believed that Plato and the, the ancient world had had wisdom. And so they were willing to read Plato. They were real willing to read, and they recovered much of the, of the thinking that had been lost during what they called, I think, the Italian founder of one of the principal figures in the Renaissance was the one who I think termed the ages prior to them, the, the, the Dark Ages. The, the Dark Ages spent no time at all on the, the thinking of Rome, the thinking of, they, they, it was all authority and the Pope and this and that. And, and so humanism was, was growing. The Renaissance was flowering. And as part of the Renaissance, Hebrew and Greek, so a guy named Roy Clint born in, I think, 1450, was the first scholar in, in perhaps a millennium to actually read the Bible, the first Christian scholar to read it in Hebrew. He went to the Jews, he learned Hebrew, and then he started reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. That had not been done. This was part of the Renaissance. Erasmus brought together manuscripts and said, this is the Greek Bible, so that people could actually read the original texts. All these things were going on, um, and there were reformers that were working in, during this period. Prior reformers were Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, we talked about him a year ago, but he hated the corruption of the church, the wealth, so he started this movement that was the mendicant friars that went without anything. He, they weren't the first mendicants, but boy, he was, he was powerful in his teaching of it, and he, he took over the, the Catholic church, in a sense, by his by his commitment to Christ. Huss, who had died a century before, been martyred a century before Luther in the Reformation. Wycliffe Savonarola, who was a, a reformer in, in Italy, who was burned at the stake in the late 1400s. All these were reformers. Now, they differed a little bit from Luther in that they were trying to reform by changing practice. But there was reformation going on all around. Um, the papal immorality, its avarice and overreach were a part of this because the, the pope's immorality and his desire for power led to princes who were willing at some point to say, you know what, the pope taxes us, the pope does this, the pope does that, I'd rather be free of the pope. And Luther was born in a time under a prince who was willing to stand against the Pope. Now, we're not certain that it was because he was a staunch Christian, though at the end of his life, he did ask for his funeral. Frederick did did ask that his funeral be done according to the Lutheran method, and he asked Luther to provide for his funeral, how he would do it. So he was stating his commitment to Luther at the end of his life. But all through his life, it was unclear where exactly he stood. It was just clear that he was going to protect Luther. And it was also clear that by protecting Luther, he stirred up a nationalism that gave him independence from the Pope's control. Now, he was an elector, Frederick the Elector. He elected the emperor. He is one of the princes of the realm of the Holy Roman Empire who had the power to elect the new emperor. That's why he's called Frederick the Elector. And so he was not the preeminent king, he was not paramount, he was second level. But, um, and, and so he had to play a careful game because Charles, who was emperor at, during the Diet of Worms, had condemned Luther to death. And so he had to not go against Charles. He had to slightly go against the Pope. He had to do all these things while protecting Luther. Very interesting guy. Um, and so we have Luther, born in 1483 in Eisleben in modern germany his parents were hans and and Margareta luder l-u-d-e-r luther later changed it to luther from luder it was initially luder his parents uh lucas chronic you've heard of chronic c-r-a-n-a-c-h lucas chronic how many of you have heard of lucas chronic well you've You've seen his works. He's a very famous Renaissance painter and a good friend of Luther. And so due to Cronach being one of the greatest painters of, of that era, we have paintings of Luther's father, Hans, and his mother, Margarita. Um, this was painted by Lucas Cronach, the elder. His son was also a painter. Uh, his father and mother apparently worked as servants for the wealthy initially. At some point, they moved to Mansfeld, where Hans worked in copper mines. Instead of working on, he became a wage earner. It appears, and then uh, the suggestion is there's some that suggests some some uh, evidence that he became a mine owner or a small mine owner, you know, and that he himself certainly as the family goes on it's clear that Luther is middle class and not lower class and and honestly if you look through church history this is one of the points returning to the point I made initially that's important you know the people who have the benefit of education are often those who do the great things that are famous for doing great things but an education doesn't make a great man it's just one of the things in the providence of God that he usually uses along the way of accomplishing things you don't need to be educated to be great but those who do things like Luther are usually educated doesn't mean he's the only great man of his era there are others who died who were anonymous and they're just as great and so at some point it seems uh, Luther his parents make a decision that they're going to send him to school and they do that um, initially he attends school in Mansfeld and is carried to school. Later in life, he thanks a guy who said he said carried him to school when he was a boy. Uh, um, according to the, the, the evidence from the, that exists from those days, this, the streets were awful. And a little boy trying to make his way through the streets, would, it would be dangerous and dirty. And, uh, and then he goes away to school to Magdeburg. And uh, this would require more money. And it's thought that his mother, there's some, some suggestion that his mother actually came from a sort of upper middle class background. When she married Hans, that she came from money and that that money was part of the way that Luther was able to go to school. He went to Magdeburg where he attended as a boarder, a school, a, a better school and a school that went up higher in age. And he boarded he said later in life he was it was a school of the brothers of the common life now the brothers of the common life were a group it was a dutch reform movement that spread throughout throughout the continent especially in the middle of the continent Um, they were committed to what's called the devotio moderna it was a an approach to god that was a reforming approach that had uh, a, a Dutchman had come up with. He said, we need to go back to the practices of the past. We need to go back, we need to pray, we need to be people who study God's word. They didn't have the word in their language, so they'd give little vignettes of the scriptures, but those vignettes, those little portions were important, and they said, you need to know these stories, these things. They, and it was a, a group that was not um, entirely professional clergy or professional religious. It included some who were priests and some who were monks, but it also had many people who just lived common lives. That's brothers of the common life. And and so what they did as they went along, and this is at least 100 years after it had started, um, they became a group that would help children get educated at good schools. They would provide They had schools. It doesn't seem that Luther went to one of their schools, though we're not certain, but what we do know is that they were in the business of opening their homes so that boarding students could go to school, and they believed that going to a good school and being educated would lead people to know God more. And so they were committed to the education of German children, and so Luther went to one of their schools or at least lived with them while going to school in Magdeburg which is interesting because Erasmus also did the exact same thing so Luther and this this man who was his his preeminent foe Erasmus had many respects the same background the brothers of the common life who practiced this devotio moderna were committed to what we would call a semi-pelagian idea of salvation they said if we serve god we will we will come to be better people. We will know God. And so they taught, you know, disciplined living, disciplined life, reading, praying, had manuals for how to pray. And these things were influential. Actually, Luther and others of the reformers adopted some of the, the devotio moderna prayer intensive prayer styles for, for their own students. Um, Luther does not seem to have opposed them and does not seem to have uh, uh, disliked what they gave him and, in fact, speaks with gratitude later in life. He attends school in Magdeburg. He then goes to school in Eisenach. And finally, in 1501, when he's 18, he enters university in Erfurt. And in 1502, he receives his Bachelor of Arts at Erfurt. He is, he is sharp. He's visibly, you know, noticeably bright. Um, In 1505, he earns his Master of Arts at the same University of Erfurt, and he begins, as his father wanted him to do, to study law. He's going to be a lawyer. This is his father's hope, that his son will become a lawyer. In July of that year, actually July 2nd today, this is the anniversary of it, in 1505, 518 years ago today, Luther was out of doors traveling and a thunderstorm struck, an intense, fierce thunderstorm. He was frightened. He was so frightened that praying for salvation from the thunderstorm to St. Anne, he vowed that if he was preserved he would become a monk. He was preserved. He, he left the experience committed to being what he had said he'd do. Or, and he entered that year the order of Augustinian hermits. He entered one of the most ancient order of monks and hermits that existed. It goes back a thousand years, over a thousand years, to Augustine he became an Augustinian hermit, which is interesting because if there was one person who had taught the things that Luther taught so powerfully with this equal power or greater power, it was Augustine, 1,200, 1,100 years before. And so Luther enters this order begun by Augustine. And and his father's upset, and he's, (laughs) as Luther goes on, Um, he's talking to his father about his decision to enter and what he did and he's saying I had to do it and his father Hans says to him Martin my bible uh, the the word of God I didn't say my bible this is how we'd say it my bible says that children are to honor their parents you knew that my will was for you to become an attorney and you did not honor me Luther later in life says nothing his father ever said hit him with more force and for a longer period of time than that statement, you did not honor me. It weighed on him for decades after that point. And in fact, when it looked like he was, after the Diet of Worms and after, when it looked like he was going to be possibly or probably condemned and burned at the stake, he said one of the things he said about that time was that he thought to himself, "Here I've I've betrayed my parents, and now I'm going to die, and I will be able to do nothing for, to honor them and to help them in their old age." Interesting, isn't it? So he enters uh, the Augustinian order. He becomes a, a part of the observant Augustinians versus the conventual con, conventual Augustinians. The observants are the ones who say we really are going to practice these things of poverty, silence. We're going to—they observe the rules of the order. The conventual conventual <laughs> are the ones who say, "Well, we got to modernize. We got to." Luther was a part of the. And this is a picture, a woodcut, actually of Martin Luther during that period done by Lucas Cronach, the elder. Have you seen that picture? You haven't? Um, I don't know if Cronach knew him during that period. He may have. He certainly knew him just a few years after that. And so it gives you a certain idea of the vigor of the guy, doesn't it? You know? Um, He was the... The Augustinian monk he rose in it, and during that period he received as his confessor the the head of the order in Germany, a man named Staupitz. Staupitz was a priest. He was a high-ranking Augustinian monk. He was kind of in the the conventual uh, part of the movement of the order, not in the observant, but he was a real man of God. And so... um, And so, Luther's in the Augustinian order. He has this man as his confessor, this, this leader of the order. Um, a man who would be acquainted with the pope I mean he's fairly high up in Catholic hierarchy he has this young monk who is very holy extremely observant whose conscience works and works and works and Luther was a young man who never had assurance that he was deserving of God's mercy this order recognized luther was an outstanding scholar and preacher and they ordained him to the priesthood in 1507 two years after that thunderstorm And in 1508 he became a junior lecturer at the university in wittenberg and he he moved to wittenberg where he spent the rest of his life in in 1508 when he was 25 until 63 The university was a new one. It had been founded just six years before in 1502 by Prince Frederick the Wise, Frederick the Elector, Frederick III, this prince I've talked about. Um, He gave lectures on the sentences of Peter Lombard and the moral teaching of Aristotle. That was what he was required to do. Now his confessor, spiritual guide, was Johannes von Staupitz, who was the vicar general and staupitz was a professor of biblical studies at the same university and he loved augustine he loved augustine's theology he was committed to god's sovereign unconditional grace and so luther is teaching scholasticism he's teaching aristotle he's teaching the sentences of peter lombard which are a bunch of scholastic propositions from an earlier, and Luther came to hate them, as did Calvin, hated Peter Lombard, <laughs> the master of the sentences. If you ever read the uh, uh, Calvin's Institutes and you see him refer to the sentences, he's talking about the, this work by Peter Lombard that students were required to study in, in all of Europe for many, many centuries. It was the standard instruction manual for young priests and so forth. Luther came to, to dislike it, but he had this confessor, this head who loved Augustine. Staupitz took Luther under his wing, and when he would hear Luther's confession, Luther would spend so long confessing, sometimes going on and on about his sins for how long? You know, it was a weekly duty, right? No, he would, at times he went six hours, I did this, and I did this, six hours. That Staupitz would become exasperated. And he yelled at Luther at one point, God is not angry with you, you are angry with God. <laughs> he accused Luther of actually being angry at God and not recognizing God's mercy and grace. And that Luther was the problem, not God. Do you not know that God commands you to hope? And this is a true assessment of Luther, isn't it? So Luther testified of Staupitz later. He was my first father in this teaching. And he gave birth to me in Christ. If Staupitz had not helped me, I would have been swallowed up in hell and left there. Later in life, Staupitz Staupitz is still the head of the Augustinian order, Luther's still a member of it. Luther has still made vows to the order when the Reformation begins in earnest, when he nails up the 95 theses and there are the disputations, and eventually there's the Diet of Worms where he's called to account and where he's banished and put under the ban as a result. And Staupitz, at that point, um, releases him, writes him a letter telling him that he's released him from his vows. Luther said, that was my third excommunication. The first was the I think the local one. The second one was the, the, the excommunication by the Pope. And then the third was Staupitz telling him he was released from his vows. He took it as an attack. There's some who want think that Staupitz wanted to free his conscience from the vows he'd made and the, Uh, Staupitz never did go with Luther into the Reformation and said I don't understand why you have to do this and it was a kind of a sore that existed for the rest of Staupitz's life and into the future with Luther as well that this man he loved so much. But in 1511 and we'll close with this, Luther was sent to Rome by Staupitz along with another more senior friar on business involving these two branches of the Augustinian order. It shows the, the trust that Staupitz had in Luther, but this pilgrimage to Holy Rome for Luther was tremendously disenchanting, okay? This is an older view of Luther. I just want you to see, this is the last picture of Luther. I'll do this, this is Lucas Chronic, and this is when he's 45. Uh, Luther goes to Rome where he is scandalized he he goes to the mass he doesn't go and he he doesn't go and see the sights. he goes to all the holy places and at the time the the saint peter's basilica is being is being put together that it's a medici is a is the pope alexander was it and there's there's just all this wealth and glamour and glory but at the masses he attends, the priests actually blaspheme, saying things like "This is <laughs> the body of Jesus," <laughs> you know, that kind of thing was going on, and Luther was absolutely scandalized by it. Yet he was still the product of his upbringing, and he came to the Sancta Scala. These were supposedly the steps that Jesus had gone up to the house of Pilate, and uh, the 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 legend catholic teaching was that these had been transported miraculously from jerusalem to rome by angels and that if you went up these steps and prayed and did the our father and did it on your knees you would wipe out by the end it would be a plenary wiping out of purgatory Okay, so you'd wipe out all the sins on your account in purgatory. So Luther did this, climbed up it on his knees, these stairs to the top, every step of the way, and supposedly according to him at the end says, I don't know if this is going to do anything or not, but he did it for his grandfather to to clear him of guilt in purgatory so that he could enter heaven. That's why Luther did it. I I just wanted to show you that... that, um, You can see even today, people are doing this. <laughs> if you think these things are weird and old and without relevance, they're not. It's still being done. People still go up and I could show you pictures of these steps far more crowded than this. So Luther comes back and he says, he repeats the Italian proverb, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. He is disgusted by the wealth, by the, the, the blasphemy, and he goes back convinced that Rome is evil. And that, of course, begins his thinking in a, in a deeper way about the whole system, the papacy, and, uh, and that's in 1512. Well, we're gonna continue on with Luther next week, um, and, uh, and then we're going to end by thinking of Luther's his great the great truths that he, he stood on and areas where Luther may have led us astray by his reformation, which I think is always an important thing to think, how he balanced the scales and how it tipped too far in a direction. So thank you for your attention. Let's, let's uh, expect God to speak to us and worship this morning from his word because that is the key to everything. And uh, you're dismissed. Thank you.